the main takeaway that I'm getting from a lot of this research is if you masturbate, maybe more often or just masturbate period, it actually has a lot of positive impact that it can confer onto your health, right? Absolutely. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. All right. So I'm with Dr. Nikki Prousey, and you are a psychophysiologist. Did I say that right? You got it. Awesome. Uh, And tell me, what is that? How did you even get into it? It's just like the word says, it's the combination of psychology and physiology. So psychologists care about how you feel. Physiologists care more what your body is doing. We put those together. So we put sensors on your body. We see what it's doing and responding. But then we also ask you how you feel and try and relate those two things. And that's usually where it gets interesting is when they don't agree. And so getting into that, I uh, there are very few places in the U.S. to study sexual psychophysiology, but the Kinsey Institute is one. It's at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, a little town in the uh, Midwest. And I needed a lab credit. It's as simple as that. I didn't know it was even a job you could have. I said, well, that that surely will upset my parents. Let me take that one. <laughs> and no, <laughs> but uh, I walked in. The first day I ever did was the vaginal responses of older adult women, looking at the potential side effects of uh, medication they were taking to see if they might facilitate sexual response. So I was pushing in VHS tapes of porn to like show these older women and monitoring their vaginal response. I was like, this is crazy. I'm doing this. <laughs> did you know that this was a description of the course? specifically when you got into it? You never know what studies are going to be running when you go into the lab. But the general sense, yes, I was like, I know it's doing sex (laughs) stuff, but I didn't realize like you could measure those things so directly at the time. So, all right. So go into your class. You're a freshman. You're doing this to not spite your parents, (laughs) theoretically. Uh, Although I feel like I've done a lot of things to do that, that were actually ended up working out very well in my favor. Then what? So you realize this could be a career and how am I going to attack this? Because there are kind of two paths. A lot of people choose to go like sex educator path, which is a fine choice in life. It's something you can do, but it's not nearly a science-based. And I love computers. I love building stuff, tinkering, breaking things. (laughs) So the psychophysiology route, uh, especially when you're in the sexuality domain, nothing's off the shelf. So my colleagues who did general psychophysiology could like look in the catalog and be like, I'll take one thing to measure galvanic skin response. Thank you. And it would arrive in the mail. We're like, we need to 3D print this. We have to figure out how to get the wires into the Arduino board or the Raspberry Pi and how that's going to feed into our computer. And so we had all of these things. Uh, we would go down to the, it was always in the basement. The engineers <laughs> were always in the basement. And you'd go down and be like, guys, this is always guys. Too. <laughs> yeah, this is what I need. I need a pad that's like this. I need silicone like that. Um, can you build it? And it was always, yes, they're going to find a way. And I loved it. You're like, Hey, I got to buy either build this in that measures skin, or I can, I have a feeling I know where you're going with the kind of things you were making out of silicone. (laughs) Yeah, we have an unusual issue. So normally stuff you put around your genitals, it's just for your use and Mm -hmm. you can condom cover it potentially or things like that. There are instructions for how to clean things. There are cleaners. 
we use them between different people. So we have like a biohazard standard that's very, very high. <laughs> so anything we get, we also have to be able to clean to this really high standard so we don't transmit HPV, HIV between people. And so there are these really cool puzzles of like, how do we get something that's going to measure this and feel okay and be acceptable to the person who's doing <laughs> it and that we can clean uh, so that everyone stays safe, uh, et cetera. So it's it's almost fair to say like you are a expert in how sex works. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let's assume we kind of know how sex works, but we don't really know how sex works. Tell me about the difference between men and women and how I would even say maybe an orgasm operates. The funny thing about orgasm in men and women is they're actually incredibly similar. So when I look at the traces from our anal devices, uh, when orgasm occurs, we cannot distinguish men from women. Their contractile patterns are the same. So in some sense, we try and make this, you know, I'd say a mountain out of a molehill, like, oh, men and women, they're so different, Mars and Venus mm -hmm. and all this. And I was like, well, <laughs> at some point, the orgasm itself is a reflex. And so when that cascade starts, it kind of proceeds the same male, female, otherwise, uh, according to those contractile responses. Uh, brain response is similar. Like we don't go in and say, oh, you know, men have frontal lobe activated and women it decreases. Like that process looks pretty similar as far as we know. There's not a ton of research on that. So some of the big differences seem to do with latency. So mm -hmm. women have a much longer latency to experience orgasm as compared to men. Um, and then there's some things we're still experimenting with to try and figure out uh, whether or not these are differences. So for example, there's a, we had tested a group of women and at one point in the study, their only job was to press a button when their orgasm started and when it finished, that was it. We controlled the vibrator from another room and <laughs> we were monitoring all their body response. And about half the women, when they pressed the button, were looking like there's no contractions. Like, why did you just press the button? Hmm. And the first thing you always assume it's us, like, oh, we mu it must have fallen out. We're not recording properly. We checked all those things. We're like, we're good. Like, everything is functioning. And eventually we decided our instruments were correct. Uh, and so about half of the women we tested, which is not a huge sample, were not having contractions when they said they were having a climax. So then the question is, well, what happened? Hmm. <laughs> you know, what was that? So now we're trying to figure out that puzzle, but that may be a huge gender difference because we have never seen that in men. Is it is it fair enough to say like, so that is such a mental thing that is happening with women and there's no physiological response? Well, so we're, my collaborator and I are fighting about this. So mm -hmm. one possibility is that it's an education issue. That is women don't know they're supposed to be contractions. Why would you guys get feedback on this? Cause they have ejaculate. They say, oh, it happens. I can tell. Uh, why would women know that? We don't teach them that. They don't know to look for that. So maybe they just don't know and they're misidentifying it. The other possibility is what you're describing, that like women have mental orgasms and they have physical orgasms. Uh, and we just have never documented that brain state before. I don't think that's the case. I'm in favor of the former one, actually, which I always thought was funny because my collaborator's a guy and he's like, mm -hmm. no, women, women know what's going on. I was like, no, I don't think they do. <laughs> I was like, this is a funny gender reversal, but uh, so it, right now it's a puzzle. We don't know why it happens, but for some reason, like women very commonly say or believe, like they know we're measuring them, so I don't think they're faking. <laughs> you know, They believe they're having a climax, they press the button, and we can't see physical evidence of it in their genitals. That's fascinating. <laughs> I will say one thing that I am 
absolutely jealous of is like men have a very long refractory period. Part of what we looked at is we had a few women in who uh, in one case was very vocal about, I have this capability, I can have so many climaxes. Those were the women who weren't having contractions. So I think we there's a huge underlying issue here that we don't know what's happening because we weren't looking. The very, very few studies uh, that look at orgasm response in the lab never measure genital physiology. They're looking at the brain typically, and this is literally there are three of us in the world. <laughs> so it's very, very tiny. You know, there's just a few of us. Um, and those other labs, uh, one in particular never measures genital response. They just go by the button press. And so I was like, well, how do you know what that was? And the other one sometimes does, we always do. And so when we look at these women who say, oh, I have five, no problem. I had 41 time. And we're saying, really? Because I just looked and you had none when you said you had one. So what does that mean? Uh, does that mean these women are reporting some incredibly high level of functioning that's not real? Uh, again, I don't think they're faking. You know, I don't think they're trying to misrepresent. But it, I think, you know, in the next 10-ish years or so, when we start to get these data out, it's going to raise a lot of questions about what is a multiple orgasm? Is that real? Is that just because when women have contractions, they look like the guys and have a longer refractory period? Or is it the same women who could have multiples that have contractions are like the guys who can have multiples? Because some guys can. And uh, we don't have good definitions of those yet. Like, what is a multiple? How close do they have to be? <laughs> like, can they be three minutes apart? What if they're six minutes apart? So all of those things are still up in the air. So and I'm guessing that this is now like the next phase you're going into, because honestly, it is fascinating. What are you doing in order to go after it? Right now, we are trying to get our study of post-orgasmic illness syndrome back up and running. That got shut just as COVID started. We literally had recruited our first participant like that March date when the world shut down. No. And oh, it was the worst. And so we've been struggling to start the data collection again ever since. We're finally like getting close. Post-orgasmic illness syndrome is something we think mainly, maybe only affects men. These guys have two to seven days of flu-like symptoms every time they have a climax. So doesn't matter, masturbation partner, they get sick every time. And the question is why, of course. Uh, it's a rare disorder, so we don't know a lot about it. And the study that we're doing, uh, what I'm most excited about is I hope we help these guys. We're trying, that's the whole point but I'm really excited about the control <laughs> because <laughs> the guys who aren't affected also are going to tell us a tremendous amount about orgasm response, about inflammatory cytokines before and after orgasm, which we know nothing about right now. It's never been measured before. Um, we'll look at some other markers as well along those lines. We're not getting testosterone. Um, unfortunately, we, we got so much in there already. It was just one more we couldn't, couldn't go after. But that's the one that I'm most excited about because uh, we happen to record a lot from women first for the orgasm physiology work. And so this study of men is funded, it's large, and it's just been crazy delayed because of COVID. Because you've done some really interesting research that was recently talked about in Slate. Can mm -hmm. you tell me about that? I am a clinical scientist by training. And so what that ultimately means is we test treatments. Mm -hmm. So when things go out to the public, we think they should be evidence-based. People shouldn't just be making stuff up when they go to help you with mental health problems. They should have a reason for doing the thing they're doing with you. And there was a group 
online that was increasingly promising to treat erectile dysfunction using an abstinence model. So uh, often this was abstaining from masturbation. These are groups that are commonly described as semen retention groups. NoFap is a large one. Um, NoFap is a bit strange because they, NoFap, at least that phrase has been around since at least 2006 online. It grew up in these bodybuilding forums where these guys thought if they abstained from masturbating, then their testosterone would go up and they would have gains. Uh, it turns out it's the opposite. If you <laughs> masturbate more, your testosterone goes up. So don't do that if, that, <laughs> <laughs> if that's your goal. Uh, do the opposite. And then uh, eventually someone copyrighted NoFap. And so now there's this business around it also. And so it's always confusing as to like who's talking about what and people get pissed off all the time about this. But these groups in general are just promising, you know, they can cure all kinds of ills or they can improve this or that. Sometimes they describe it as an internet challenge. Sometimes they describe it as a treatment. And they're- Hold on, Bind, This is, the, the core of it is, or the foundation is of not masturbating. Not masturbating is the main thing. And so uh, one study we did was saying like, well, anything else, you know, <laughs> like what else are you abstaining from? How long are you supposed to abstain for these benefits? Like forever, it's 90 days, some people say. Uh, and it's not super clear, frankly, like the that was part of the point of the survey is like, it just depends who you ask. Some are like, you have to be away from porn. You can't have sex. You um, can have sex, but only in these circumstances. And I was like, okay, so we're just going back to the 1940s is what's happening. Mm. You can have sex when you're married with your heterosexual partner. <laughs> it's like, I see where this is going. <laughs> Um, and in the context of studying those claims that they were going to help with erectile functioning, um, we started to see some of these forums actually had like a very, very strange, like different conversation going on. They were very aggressive against pornographers, for example, because they see them as tempting them to masturbate. And there are a lot of violent posts online. And so we started collecting these and have a paper under review now looking at some of those issues. What do you mean by a lot of violent posts? Uh, so apologies, but it was like describing dismembering pornography performers because they see them as like causing them to masturbate and that that's their goal is not to. And so, you know, they're similar and different from incels. So in incel is involuntary celibate. And generally they see themselves as... Um, you know, we want to have romantic relationships, but because of the mating market, we're unable to and uh, we're rejected. And that's kind of what they bond over. In the case of NoFap, uh, they tend to be highly narcissistic. So they're like, we're amazing. We're strong. We're powerful. And we're going to overcome this bad pornography people and these bad scientists who tell us to masturbate. And so a lot of, um, to support those kind of beliefs, they have a lot of conspiracy beliefs. So, you know, media is controlled by the government because they want to keep men weak through masturbation. And oh, we're no. like, what is happening in this forum? <laughs> like, um, but they vary a lot. Some of the semen retention is uh, very spiritual. So people treat it more as like that kind of a practice, more like aesthetic. Uh, some of the... Um, other groups are more internet challenge, you know, so just a funny thing where they make fun of each other and have a ton of memes and, you know, it seems kind of harmless. Oh, this is, this is actually, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm actually taking a second to take everything you're saying in. <laughs> it's happening from so many different angles. Yeah. And there isn't yeah. necessarily a clear cut reason. There all seem to be a separate set of motivations driving this. It, it's all something about promoting masculinity. 
it's, it's core to all of them, but they vary a lot as to like exactly where they came from to that. So like that was last year, the International Center for Counterterrorism just recognized NOFAP as an extremist misogynist group. So I believe these are the next group to be aware of, <laughs> should we say, about um you know, potentially bad acts coming out of because there's some extremist feelings in those groups. But I, part of why I distinguish them is I don't think they're all like that. Uh, they all have a similar kind of like, we're, we're men, we're men, we're men, you know, kind of a, a approach where they're saying the thing we're doing is making us more masculine, is going to make us uh, better in bed, um, more attractive to women. But some really seem to take that as a nice thing that they do for themselves and their spiritual practice. Some is like a challenge, a funny thing to do with their friends. And some take it like a little too far, basically. I They're, can completely see it. I mean, the next logical step is if you're already in that extremist group, it is how do we band together against the rest of the world? Yeah. Oof. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so you've been studying these groups. <laughs> yeah. And so part of what we were finding is they're telling the groups that they can help them abstain from masturbation and things related to it, like pornography, sometimes partnered sex. Sometimes they ban fantasy. They're like, you're not supposed to sexually fantasize. Like, good luck with that. Well, how's it, um, does, how does it even happen? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't, couldn't imagine. Yeah, they call like. it monk mode. So monk is like when you do nothing. Okay. I think it's like a play on the religious. I know they're lying. They're all telling each other they're lying. They're lying. <laughs> so... Um, so that's part of the question is, first of all, does it work? Because I'm a clinical scientist. That's the question is, hey, if something works, we'll check it out. And there are lots of online support groups for other health issues like drinking, people who want to cut back on their alcohol consumption, people who are managing uh, going through cancer treatments, you know, and need support around the side effects they're experiencing. And those groups have been studied. And the more people are involved with them, they tend to have fewer negative symptoms. They feel better supported. We did the study with NoFap. We found the opposite. The more engaged people are, the more they post, the more they're going into that forum. Uh, symptoms of depression are higher, symptoms of anxiety are higher, symptoms of erectile dysfunction are higher. So this group is unique. It really seems to be going the opposite direction. And now we're doing longitudinal work of scraping their forums and analyzing the posts uh, using a semantic analysis, which is a form of natural language processing, which if it was much fancier, you might be able to call it AI, but I hate when people mm -hmm. label everything AI. So this is not AI. <laughs> um, so we're doing some analyses looking to see when people are posting, are they actually getting better over time? And instead we found a few suicides in the group. So now we've like stopped and we're working on a paper and say like, should we have caught the, you know, like what's happening mm. in these groups that people are dying by suicide? Can we characterize what's going on with them? Um, so we're still, I would say kind of in the middle of that area of research. It's like, we know a fair amount about the group now. And I think there's a lot this could go towards. I'm not sure exactly what direction we'll end up in, but right now we're kind of in the middle of looking at like the content of what's in the forums. So when you think about the guys and how, first, how large are these communities? The largest on Reddit is 1.1 million right now. Okay, so this is massive. Yeah. It's a huge community. Yes. When you think about the reasons why these men, they're abstaining from masturbation and they're having higher incidence of depression, anxiety, and I think you said or ED, mm -hmm. what is the, do you theorize, and actually, you actually said by masturbating more, your testosterone level actually increases. And so theoretically, like it is not caused by that. Why do you think it's happening? Uh, it appears to us that they shame each other. 
So they, as you might expect, have many, many relapses because to them, relapse can be having a sexual thought. <laughs> uh, relapse can be I masturbated. Relapse can be I looked at a pornographic image. And I don't know why they chose to do this abstinence-based approach, but they did. And so uh, people relapse a lot. Shame. And they're incredibly shaming. So we asked, thinking about your last relapse, how did you feel? What about these different emotions? Highest was shame. You know, I feel terrible. And you read some of their posts, and sometimes you're like, I'm 15, I just relapsed, and I want to kill myself. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, don't do that. Let it run. Yeah. I was like, this is going to be okay. And I just wish someone would take these kids. It's a ton of youth on these forums. Mm -hmm. Take these kids and say, like, this is fine. <laughs> this is normal. It's, he it's healthy. Yes. Yep. Yes. And so it's very frustrating because I feel like these groups are causing us to lose decades of effort in trying to normalize masturbation, trying to support youth, like exploring and developing in an appropriate, comfortable, non-shaming way. And it's just backsliding everything. All right. So there's there's 1.1 million men. And that's an obviously I mean, some proportion of them that are mm -hmm. probably like hyper-focused and contributing to the community, but in general, it is a shame-based approach of if you did not abstain from something, you mm -hmm. should feel bad because it actually doesn't mean you can be in the group if I'm being honest, right? And so I guess the question is, when you look at the demographics of that group, because you can't have access to that information because a lot of it, it's primarily anonymized. Yep. Who do you think these people are? <laughs> Our, so our surveys can get at stuff like that, but then we always have to be suspicious of like how randomized yep. is this really? Uh, and we're very, very well aware of that. The, we can do some of that with scraping. So uh, scraping is just like getting information in text form, in this case, from the internet. People often volunteer their age. So like they have a an accountability partners thing where they match people up. We went through like, there are a ton of kids in there posting, I'm a 13 year old male. Does someone want to be my sexual accountability partner? I was like, whoa, what is happening? <laughs> so again, we know there are a lot of youth on there. Um, we have a funny requirement because we're regulated by this federal board. We can't study youth from these forums. So we have to like just scour through everything and try and get the kids out. And that's part of why I know a bit more about the age issue is because we spend a lot of time cleaning our data to remove the children uh, that are in these forums because we can't have them in our data set to analyze them. And my sense is too, it's the internet, right? So anyone can post on this. And some of where the shame is coming from is it is very international. So for example, there's a phenomena in India uh, called DOT syndrome, uh, D-H-A-T. And DOT is this fear of semen loss. So they often fear when they're urinating, like, oh, I think my urine's cloudy, you know, my life force is draining. And they become very upset about this. It's mm. considered an erotic disorder, an anxiety disorder. It wasn't present in the U.S. You know, 20 years ago. It is now, <laughs> and we think part of how it came in was through these groups, the groups yeah. because the Indian guys would post on NoFap, uh, their logical place when they're worried that they're having life force loss through semen Such loss. Such gross science, and I can see exactly <laughs> how this thing gets yeah. out. You read it, you're t with your friend, you mention it to him in school, no one's gonna check the facts, all of a mm -hmm. sudden it becomes a thing. Yeah, they're kids, they wouldn't know. I mean, that's the thing I try and keep in mind always when I read some of this stuff, I was like, oh, that's ridiculous, but I'm like, this person's probably 14, <laughs> you know, you just gotta keep in mind. Uh, that's what they're going for. You know, that's who they're selling to. So then they sell these online treatment groups, you know, come to our meetings, our groups. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> 
So uh, it's just a lot of, they're selling a product. You know, they're trying, uh, make, you have to make sure people are upset that they feel they need something from you so that they'll buy that. And in this case, they really seem to be manufacturing something that I, I wish they would talk to their folks about instead. <laughs> has the group grown exponentially? How long has it been around for? So the company itself uh, was trademarked around 2013. That was the same time the website for it was started. So the Reddit website started in June 2011. Said so the should backtrack one more month. So it had been on bodybuilding.com. Mm -hmm. And in May of 2011, their No Nut November blew up. Like they were doing one of these challenges. And for some reason, I don't know why, you know, <laughs> internet, uh, that one got very, very popular. And so I think what happened is they saw that because they were bodybuilders also mm -hmm. and started this subreddit based on that and then made like 50 subreddits that were like, no fat best, no fat women, no fat. There was like this huge <laughs> explosion of them. And that was the one that stuck. And then they uh, trademarked this in 2013. They start nofap.com. And so now there's this like competing uh, LLC, but then also a ton of folks that are doing it, selling their own coaching practice or, you know, whatever other supplements they have. It's a, it's a weird space. Talk about a rabbit hole. You know, it's what like you start hole. to fall down that and you're like, what is happening? I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of late <laughs> nights where you have been scouring these communities and just what the hell is going on? <laughs> no, I got to shut that down because at some <laughs> point you're like, okay, diminishing returns, right? That's the rule, diminishing returns. Uh, shut this down. So I guess the question is, right, you also something that said something that's interesting. Why is it that when men masturbate, their testosterone levels actually increase from a physiological perspective? So I don't know the mechanism per se because not a lot of folks have studied this. Usually the data we have about masturbation has to do with reproduction. So it's very concerned with sperm motility. You know, how does masturbating two days before a sperm collection impact the success of implantation? We have some studies around that, but there's uh, far less interest in characterizing the impact of masturbation itself on just testosterone, like free testosterone. So there was a small study. It was so well done, even though it's small. I love it because I was like, oh, it's finally the mm -hmm. right design where they do what's called a crossover. So they had guys, you know, specifically not masturbate and abstain, look at testosterone, masturbate on a particular day when they knew how long it had been, look at the testosterone. And as you probably know, and your audience probably knows, you know, there are fluctuations of testosterone throughout the day in all guys. And so it's not that like you do this and you immediately get some huge spike in testosterone, but it was the next time when there should have been a nadir, a uh, low point of T, it was higher. So it's keeping it from dropping as far. And that could have been a function of the study. Again, this is, you know, a smaller study, but everything we see seems to be the more you masturbate, the higher your testosterone. So just do not abstain to increase your testosterone. That, that I feel very confident does not happen. <laughs> but the question you asked more specifically, I think like, well, how does that happen? And what is the exact mechanism? I don't think we know. So tell me about, you know, You've been, you were arguably at like the nexus and you are the person, I'm going to call you the plug for sexual information. What do you think are like the three benefits of sex that no one even knows about right now? So I'm very interested in the idea of applying sexual stimulation to general health. So if my science helps you, you know, hold out longer when you want to or helps you have a stronger erection, that's great, but that's not my goal. My goal is to figure out how to apply sexual stimulation to general health. So easiest one, sleep. 
lots of people already do it. They masturbate to help themselves fall asleep at night. There are tons of animal studies showing that uh, ejaculation promotes somnolence. So that is, you know, if you help a little uh, little rodent. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going there. If you help a rat <laughs> have an ejaculation, uh, they fall asleep much more quickly. It doesn't seem to change the quality of their sleep. That doesn't seem affected. But this has been replicated. So assuming like that... the same in humans. <laughs> assuming it carries over into humans. Uh, the, the proper study to actually demonstrate that has not been done yet, but there's every reason to think it should because we know one of the things that spikes is vasopressin, which is a somnolent with Climax. So you don't have to masturbate. It can be getting off by any means. Get your vasopressin, go to bed. <laughs> so I think that's a clear application. So another one could be uh, we were exploring whether orgasmic meditation might be useful for helping with things like PTSD. And I say like because one of the core features is a dampened affect. So when you're experiencing PTSD, it's not that you're depressed per se. You just numb out. Hmm. You're like, if I just don't feel anything, my life will be safer. And it's difficult to try and reintroduce some of those more intense emotions when you've had uh, an experience that was traumatic. And we often, there are lots of good treatments for that already, like we have some, uh, but they're very hard on the clients. So they're often uh, involve kind of re-experiencing where you have to talk about the trauma, you have to you know, um, relive aspects of it. People find that very unpleasant. It's one of the highest dropout uh, therapies that we have because they don't want to come back and talk about this anymore. I get it. So we said, well, what about the other side? Can we use an increase in the affective range on the high end if we have high pleasure experiences to increase that affective breadth in a way that might help people with numbing symptoms like in PTSD? So we did the first study of that. Uh, orgasmic meditation is a practice where the clitoris is stroked by a partner for 15 minutes without any instruction other than to feel. So they're not actually having a climax typically. They're just supposed to be feeling the sensation in their body. And we looked at folks who had had a history of some sexual trauma and those who had not. So already this is a select sample. Yep. We didn't just take folks off the street who, you know, had had a traumatic experience and then have them do this thing. But specifically sexual trauma before in the past. We, we looked at a variety of different types, but that was one we analyzed specifically because, you know, we said this is a sexual intervention. So if that, if you can't tolerate this, this is a no-go, you know, we just wouldn't pursue it any further. And we saw the folks that actually had the trauma experienced more sexual arousal during those sessions than people who had less. So that was really interesting for us. We're like, why would they be facilitated? You know, that's usually with trauma, you always see a Opposite. dampened response. So our thought was that orgasmic meditation practice is not sex, right? I mean, you didn't just like meet at the bar and, you know, let's go home. It's the, the container that's highly structured. They go and they take lessons in like how to do this <laughs> thing. And there are lots of rules about you say this, you don't say that, you know, you don't have sex during this is not foreplay. And so they have that really nice structure. They said, it's actually really good if you've had a traumatic experience to know what's going to happen. You know, this is really uh, highly structured and controlled. So you may be able to experience pleasure without that fear of like, is this person going to do that to me again? Are they going to be too rough? Are they going to be uh, demanding something I'm not comfortable with? And so I think it removes a lot of those things. So uh, we don't know for sure, but orgasmic meditation could be something that might be helpful with numbing symptoms like occur in PTSD. And is it really just if I understand this, it's a it's a framework that you put around 
how you should approach sexual stimulation in a safe environment so someone can almost see what's going to happen next without the anticipation of, is this unsafe? That's that's a lot of the main features. So they have made it highly routine. So you can even like there's a business that has an app around it and stuff (laughs) to even learn this thing. But there are YouTube videos. Um, So it is like uh, the series was so structured that we actually could like give them the instructions on a computer screen and say, okay, now do the grounding portion, now do this. And they Hmm. would do it. And then they'd say, okay, we're done by pressing a button and like next phase. And so the only thing that's uh, always the same time is the clitoral stroking is always 15 minutes. And uh, so it's really interesting. Like when I first heard about that, I was like, they what? Would it like five people do this? You know, I figured for sure it was uh, one of those communities. <laughs> but they're actually were pretty large and seem to be continuing to grow. So I'm curious if it'll take off any more than it has. And I would love to do more work on that you know, in that space to see if we could be applied in that way. But almost like the the takeaway from that is that if you do things in a structured manner where you're giving people some more instruction, mm-hmm. you can take something that's theoretically a little bit uncomfortable and maybe make it a little bit more comfortable. Absolutely. Yep, okay. Put some boundaries around it. All right. So that's, that's two. I'm dying to hear what three is. <laughs> um, so there's any number I've always like speculating on these things, but, uh, the things we talked before about actually having a climax, this is with a partner. Something you might be able to do by yourself to benefit is sexual arousal alone uh, promotes an opioid response. Opioids are a, a pain modulator. And there have already been some studies looking at the role of sexual arousal in sexual pain. So that's using, uh, usually these studies use what are called von Frey hairs, which are these weird hairs that vary in their thickness and they put them in forceps and then they poke around the vulva until it like goes to a 90 degrees. They're like, do you feel that? Do you feel that? Does that hurt? Does that hurt? Very strange <laughs> way of testing sensitivity. And so there have been a series of studies kind of looking at the impact of sexual arousal on pain perception, both in the genitals and the vulva and then the forearm is usually the control area. So there's some suggestion that sexual arousal may help with pain issues. Hmm. So I've always said, well, what about broader pain? What about fibromyalgia? Like those folks, we always tell them to go exercise. And let me tell you, when you tell someone of fibromyalgia in a therapy session that they need to go exercise, too much. they would love to punch you. <laughs> They're like, you think I haven't tried? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if there's a way in, like if that gives us some other way to help folks that have a systemic pain problem, why would we not pursue that? I mean, you're giving some natural opioids. They're safe. You can always get access to them. They're free. <laughs> you know, why are we not pursuing that? So you're you're almost descri- using it, thinking about sexual stimulation as a prescription per se that a physician writes to someone to say, hey, listen, forget about the exercise, forget about the diet, just go have some more sex or or masturbate. Yeah, maybe not forget about the other thing. Okay, in that's, addition. A, that's, a, that's, that's a really good point. I'm sorry, I should not have jumped there. In can, addition to all Yeah, whatever you want. Just <laughs> be sure you masturbate afterwards. <laughs> and so do you see that becoming like a real thing? Like, is there a movement behind that? Uh, not yet. Okay. The, in fairness, there need to be more data. That's the main issue is I try to be cautious when I say these things because I think they're true, but I don't know if they are. We haven't been able to test them yet. And that's part of the trouble with not having access to the funds. And if you do, you're probably at a smaller European university where they don't have as much money to do the big clinical trial that you really need. And so that's my hope is that we're able to interest more funders because this is not just trying to improve your orgasm consistency, which is great, wonderful people who want to do that. 
But I'm like, no, we're working on this because this is a way to get people to take fewer sleep medications. You know, this hmm. is a different way of accessing healthcare when we set up so many barriers in the U.S. to that. Like, let's make this simple. <laughs> you know, let, have them try this first. Let's understand what the profile is. When you masturbate, like when is the highest somnolence period? Should you be in bed when you do that? So you're ready and like can have a, call it a sleep attempt, a sleep attempt right away. Should you do it somewhere else and then go lay down in bed? Like where, what's the profile and the time course of that, that we can tell someone this is how to do it. This is how to take advantage of that physiological response. Some people, when they masturbate and they go to sleep, they actually don't have sleep that's as deep and it's a little bit more shallow and they wake up a couple hours later. Is that a thing? <laughs> it, it's not a thing as far as I know, but it's because it's as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Like we don't really look at those. Um, and I don't know if it could be related even to, uh, you know, we have periods of nocturnal erection. Uh, they occur in men and women. So, you know, with every uh, REM sleep cycle, you have some uh, erectile or uh, clitoral response during sleep. So it could be that, you know, masturbating, maybe then when you get into a REM session that has some interaction with the REM state, I'm just shooting the, <laughs> shooting the breeze here. But um, I, I wonder if that may be a factor for some people. And is it, because it's, the main takeaway that I'm getting from a lot of this research is if you masturbate, maybe more often or just masturbate, period, it actually has a lot of positive impact that it can confer onto your health, right? Absolutely. Do you know how many, what percentage of people don't masturbate? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but there are studies that have actually done that work now, looking at nationally representative samples. So they uh, have samples of men and women that are known to look like the U.S. and have them have at least asked them. You know, we don't <laughs> follow them to verify <laughs> these things, but uh, there are folks I know on the high end. It's around like two percent that are masturbating daily or more. So I'm guessing, based on just normal distribution, the other end might be something comparable. Like an absolute zero for guys is probably relatively rare. Um, and then it also matters if you say, well. Are you, have you masturbated in your lifetime? Uh, that's very low for men and women. Uh, I don't know precisely how low. I wouldn't want to rely on my mm -hmm. memory for those tables. But um, And then the other question is like, okay, if you do, how often? It's like, oh, well, I haven't in you know three months. So one thing that's interesting about sex drive is uh, sometimes people talk about it in exactly that way is a drive. And I hate that word because it's really not a drive. Hunger is a drive. Sleep is a drive. Sleep, sex is not a drive because you cannot deplete it. So the longer you go without sex, the less you want it. Uh, ultimately, there may be some acute effects we don't know as well. So like if you have sex once a week regularly and then you don't that week, there may be shorter term effects, but longer term, it's it's like a use it or lose it <laughs> kind of a thing. So if you don't have sex for a long period, typically your drive is not like then raging, like, oh my God, I need it right now. It's like, no, I kind of forgot about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it as much. I'm not in the habit anymore. I don't have that expectation anymore. And you're not gonna forget to eat. <laughs> you know? like your body will tell you, feed me or I will kill you. <laughs> so. so then is it is it if you don't have sex for some prolonged period of time and you kind of lose the desire and the urge to do it, is it fair to say like it completely almost goes away to a certain extent? Yeah, that really seems to be the case. So we have some data that speak to that. As you can imagine, this is something you can't really randomly assign mm -hmm. someone to like not come for a year. So <laughs> in fairness, that would be the proper study to do here. But in people who haven't had sex recently, we actually see decreased reported drive. 
So it really does seem like if you don't for a long enough period, you just kind of get out of the habit. And is there, is there any research to show that if you have sex more often, maybe it increases mental acuity overall? There are lots of association studies that look amazing for your brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's the one that's like, oh, in older age, people who had more frequent sex had a better word vocabulary uh, retention. There was a study went everywhere because it was like better memory. Like, okay, but the people who are staying sexually active when they're older also are probably healthier in general. So sex probably didn't cause that, but I'm willing to lie for you. God bless you. Thank you so much. <laughs> we are so incredibly excited to have you here. Thank you so much for talking all about an incredibly stigmatized and taboo topic, but more importantly, doing the research to help us know that masturbation is good. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not, intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.